Addiction comes in many forms and plagues many families and individuals, but it doesn't mean the end. An inspiring story of recovery, advice, and hope today on the podcast. I'm Natalie Tisdall, a journalist who decided enough is enough. I left a career that looked glamorous to do what I was scared of doing, going out on my own. I'm a married working mom of three. On this podcast, we're going to talk about issues that really matter. Why am I not sleeping? What's up with that diet everyone's talking about? Are my kids falling behind? How do I leave that job and start over? Welcome to the Natalie Tisdall Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, everyone. It's Natalie. Happy New Year. You know, new beginnings are so refreshing. New jobs, new babies, a new house, a new year. Sometimes we need a kick to make these things happen. And sometimes we need support through new things. I have a different and special podcast for you today. Mike Gibson is a former NFL football player. He joins me on the podcast to talk about drug and alcohol addiction. I often talk about ways to improve our health. Sometimes that means vitamins, eating plans, exercise, But today I want to talk in a very real and candid way about something that affects millions of people. And if it's you, know that you are loved and supported here. If it's someone you know, maybe today will help you help them. Parents, we're also going to talk about helping our young adults. Mike Gibson earned a scholarship to Cal Berkeley for football and played two years before he got drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles in 2008. He played a total of six years in the NFL with the Eagles, Seattle Seahawks, and the Arizona Cardinals. In his third year, he suffered an injury, and shortly after, he got addicted to prescription painkillers. After he retired, he became a sheriff's deputy while also abusing Oxycontin and Adderall. He was a deputy for under a year before getting asked to resign for his unhealthy habits. This setback turned him to becoming addicted to stronger substances like heroin and meth. After going in and out of rehab six times in his last session, Mike made a breakthrough. He now works in treatment centers as an addiction counselor. His advice today might just be what someone needs for a new beginning. Thank you for listening, everyone, and for sharing this podcast. I'm excited for what's in store for 2023. Let's get started now with Mike Gibson. Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And this is in my year and a half now of podcasting. This is the first time that I've been able to dive into this topic and your story really, it convinced me that I need to do this topic on addiction. Can you give us your background? Yeah. So, uh, born and raised in Napa, California, you know, unfortunately have a history of substance abuse within my family. And, uh, interestingly enough for me, I was kind of like the dorky kid growing up. I was always like the short stocky kid got made fun of quite a bit because I've always been a big guy, a big kid. You know, I'd seen what addiction had done to my family. And, you know, I never wanted to be a part, I never wanted addiction to be a part of my family. So I stayed away from it for a long time. And, um, you know, eventually I became addicted to prescription pain medication. That was a result of of me playing professional football for six years and just battling through some injuries, doing whatever I could to make it on the field. You know, eventually uh, that progressed into using heroin and methamphetamine among other things as well. Alcohol was something that I abused. And and a lot of that was a result of things that I was going through with my own personal mental health. So today I have uh, five years clean. My sobriety date is September 25th, 2017. And uh, yeah, love it. Love life today. 
Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Five years, that, that, that's a big deal. When did you realize there was a problem? Did you as a teenager or when you first started playing and hurting and, and needing the medications or when did the light bulb go off? Yeah. So for me, like I said, I, I, I never even really drank until I was 20 years old. You know, I wanted to stay away from it because of what it had done to my family, but I didn't really have a sense of what addiction was. Looking back at it now, I realized that whenever I felt uncomfortable within a group setting, I would use a, 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 a third party substance to get me out of myself. Right, because it changed the way that it made me feel. It made me more outgoing, made me more talkative due to having social anxiety around large groups of people. So looking back at it now, I see that. The other part was I'd gotten hurt. I dislocated my hip and had a torn labrum in my hip. And, you know, I was doing whatever I could to, to stay on the field. So um, I'd been prescribed medication, Vicodin in particular, and was taking it as prescribed. After about a month and a half, two months of using it, asking for hey, this isn't working as well. And so they're like, cool, here you go. Here's just take two more. And then they would up my prescription, not by a large amount. And I took that. And so I took that throughout the course of the season. Now, afterwards, I'm like, I don't want to get addicted to this stuff because of what it has done to my family. So I want to go home. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get off of everything during the off season. And during that process, when I had stopped, I had gotten sick. And what they now call is dope sick. I went to the emergency room and it was like, Hey, I don't have, I feel like I'm sick. I need some fluids or something. And, uh, the doctor looked at my chart and he's like, how long have you been using these for? And I said, well, I've been using them over the course of the season. So six months or so. And he, uh, he's like, well, I think you're chemically dependent upon it. And I'm like, okay, well, what can we do to fix it? And that emergency room doctor at the time had prescribed me, you know, 30 Vicodin at the time. And was like, here, take this home, talk to your primary care physician. Now, the fear that I had was going back to Seattle with the Seahawks and saying, hey, you know, I got a problem. And I, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't a one percenter on the team. I wasn't the guy that was making millions and had a secure spot on the team. So I didn't want to go to them and say, hey, I have this issue. I need help because I was afraid that they were going to cut me and that I wouldn't have it. So I continued along that path. And that's when I realized that I had an issue, that I had a real problem on my hand. I eventually had uh, failed the drug test. And so I was, and then I had an appeal for it. So during that five week period, they had tested me five times a month. And that's where I realized what, what, what I now know is the phenomenon of craving. And the phenomenon of craving is, you know, not having the substance, but thinking about it 24 seven on top of having some physical withdrawals, you know, constantly thinking about it 24 seven. And, um, so I, I'd gotten a FedEx from the teams or from the, from the NFL stating you're no longer in the program. Mm -hmm. And like I said, for the last five weeks, it's literally all I could think about. So what did I do? Went to a teammate says, Hey man, I know you got some stuff. Is there any way that I can get some stuff? And from then on, it was off to the races. And you're just in pain. I mean, yeah. you, 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 it's one thing to play in the NFL and the, what your body went through, mm -hmm. but there are people I know listening who relate because they have back problems or mm -hmm. they dislocated a shoulder or whatever, ever, you know, there are things that people are self-medicating mm -hmm. and then it becomes, as you've mentioned, this mental issue of thinking about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and I've had multiple surgeries even before I was addicted. Right. And, and I had these surgeries and hated it. Absolutely hated it. So, you know, I, I, I say all the time, I said, I became an addict on, 
on accident, but I be, I stayed an addict due to my own personal choice, you know, or the disease of addiction, right? And the phenomenon of craving and, you know, being unable to get off of it physically, you know, coming off of opiate withdrawals is by far um, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. And, uh, you know, it's, if I had to, it's like the flu times a thousand, you know, you're not sleeping for days on end, you're sweating. It's brutal. The beautiful thing is, is I don't think I'll ever forget that. And, you know, I, I, I forgot it. I went to treatment six different times. You know, I didn't get it the first time. And that was due to me not working on myself, not working on things I had going on upstairs in my head, dealing with past traumas and quite frankly, not many consequences. And, uh, my family did a good job of stepping up and and setting those boundaries. And as a result, I had consequences to it. I want to ask you about that in a minute, because I know there are people listening who might not personally have an addiction, but they know someone who does and they want to be able to help them. Mm -hmm. but, but back just to the addiction and you realizing you needed help going through that, which I can't even imagine but making it through that, when you reflect back, and, and I know you help people with this now, how prevalent is it? How, when, even in, in the people that you work with now as an addiction counselor, mm -hmm. and you can tell me about your job also in a minute, mm -hmm. we have a lot to get to, yeah. how prevalent is it? How many people are struggling like you did? Oh, man. I mean, there's different variations of alcoholism. There's different variations of usage, right? It's, it's, Every single person that comes to our facility, they have their own story. They have their own different degree of alcoholism, right? I have a friend. We're talking alcohol. We're talking um, all kinds of prescribed medications. Yeah. And then when you don't get enough out of that, people start going to harder stuff as you did mm -hmm. because they're not getting what they need. They want the relief. No, definitely. I think that the, the crackdown on prescribing opiates is, is amazing right now. But what I think is a struggle is a lot of people that I've seen go through treatment in particular, it's they've been getting prescribed these opiates for years and these doctors have been leading them on knowingly or unknowingly, right? The prescribers are fully aware of what these substances do to people. Xanax, any sort of benzodiazepine, you know, they've been, oh, you go to a psychiatrist and I, I have anxiety. Cool. I'm going to prescribe you 30 Xanax. You know, there's only two substances that'll kill you during withdrawals, and that's benzodiazepines and alcohol. You know, heroin will make you feel like you want to die, but it but it's not going to kill you. So, but these doctors are prescribing Xanax like crazy, and knowing fair well what these substances do to people, and then all of a sudden they hear that these they start getting cracked down on, and so they stop prescribing medication to these clients. Well, if you're somebody who needs pain medication and you're not getting prescribed pain meds anymore, what's your next choice? Your next choice is heroin. And the heroin's different now from when I was using, you know, now you don't know what you're getting in, in any substances. Fentanyl is killing people left and right and they're cutting it and everything, cocaine, party drugs. You don't know what you're getting when you get a substance. So they're pressing pills to make it look like it's, you know, you're getting an Oxycontin when you're really not. It's partially Oxycontin, but it's also fentanyl. So people, so people are using these substances and family members are dying. Loved ones are dying. Yeah. That's a, it's such a big story right now. We're starting to finally hear more about it, but it's still a big issue. You could just have remained silent. <clears throat> you could have gone through treatment, moved on with your life, gotten an everyday job and moved on with your life, which congratulations that you've gotten through that. Mm -hmm. It's just huge. 
but you've decided to be public about it. You pitched to my podcast and lots of others and, and why and how, how does that feel? You know, it feels good. I think that this disease doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what you've done in the past. It doesn't care what your social, socioeconomic background is. One thing that I, I think has been brought to light over the last few years is, you know, obviously celebrities and the publicity of it. You know, I've known since I was a kid that celebrities use substances, right? They go to these parties, but, you know, having people that are in recovery and being outspoken about it, you know, obviously they have a way bigger platform than I do myself. But the thing is, is, you know, they, somebody's out there listening, somebody's out there talking to and dealing with a family member, a loved one, right? And it's just that, that motivation for, you know, hopefully them to get the help that they need and the stigma of alcoholism, the stigma of mental health disabilities in general has started to the walls for that. have started to get torn down. And, um, I think that's important that that's one thing that I have seen over the last five, six years has been an increase in, in the publicity of it, which is huge. Hey everyone, it's Natalie. I am excited to let you know that I'm opening up spaces for collaboration and advertising and sponsorship on this podcast and on my YouTube channel. If you're a brand looking to grow in the wellness, family, or mindfulness spaces, I would love to collaborate with you. You can find a link to get in touch with me in the show notes, and you can always find out more about what I'm up to on natalietisdall.com. Well, how would you advise people to get help if they're listening and they're like, you know, I am addicted. I know I am. And I just don't know what to do about it. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's plenty of treatment centers out there. There's multiple treatment centers, you know, do, you can do a quick Google search and find something that's local in your area. If you have a county insurance or a county funded insurance, call the 1-800 number on the back of the card. It can be something as simple as that. You know, if you have insurance, call that number on there. If you don't have insurance, there's resources for you out there. It all starts with the phone call. That's it. Take a chance. Take a chance on yourself. People who know that, mm -hmm. they know it. They know the number's right there. They know they can Google it. Something holds people back. Yeah. And it did for you for years. Yeah. And it holds other people mm -hmm. back. Well, How do you get them past that? How do you motivate them to finally do it? Yeah. You know, I think people struggle with fear, fear of judgment. Right. And that's something that I've struggled with for a very, very long time. And looking back on it now, now that I've been working in this field of recovery and I've been in recovery, the amount of text messages, phone calls that I've gotten from people that I knew that I, you know, that I didn't realize that they had family members struggling and they called me and they asked me for help. So as much as you feel alone in this situation, you're not alone in this situation. And uh, I would like to say it's easy, but it's not easy. You know, they call it the thousand pound phone for a reason. You know, because picking up that phone, it feels so heavy just to reach out and call for help. But for me, I got, when I picked up the phone for the last time, I was tired. I was tired of living the lifestyle. I was tired of living in the darkness and I was ready to change my life. You know, I, I, I promise you, if you go through and you dedicate 100% of everything you got into going into treatment, your life will change. You know, maybe... There's something that didn't happen for me so quickly, you know, it took time, you know, getting, getting certain things back in my life, my life materialistically will never be the same as what it was. I, I can promise you that. Well, I can't promise you that because things could change. Right. But with genuine relationships, those things don't matter. Yes, to you is what it, it, thinking, exactly. Right? You know, I had fancy cars, you know, 
million dollar home in Napa, which now is nothing, right? With the market that it's in today. But I lost all those things, you know? And yeah, I had flashy cars. Now I drive a 2018 Nissan and, you know, I just was fortunate enough to buy a house. But those are the things that you're able to get back and gain back as long as you work. It works if you work it. So just give it a chance. Take a chance on yourself because you deserve it. And that's the main thing that I do, Mike. You deserve it. You deserve a good life. And I didn't think that I did. So that that was a uh, that was a big struggle struggle for me. That was a, I, when somebody told me that I'm like, why do I deserve it? What, what does it make? What is it that makes me so different? And in reality, it, it doesn't it doesn't make me different than anybody else. Would well, tell us about uh, your job now because you went through a couple of iterations of professional life mm-hmm. and found yourself working now with addicts. Tell me what that's what that's like. Yeah, so I got so right now I work for a mental health facility located in San Diego, the Mental Health Center San Diego is what it's called, and then I work for a outpatient substance abuse facility called Healthy Life Recovery. And um, you know, it, it was something that when I made my last phone call, the person that uh, James uh, was named, he was in Hawaii with his family on vacation, and I just couldn't quite grasp that concept that somebody cared about me that much to pick up the phone while they were on vacation, and I'm like. Uh, that's what I want to do. I want to help people that work in recovery. So um, I do community outreach, business development. Um, I work in admissions, getting people into treatment. And if they don't work with our treatment center in particular, or we can't accommodate them in any way, then I get them into another treatment center that can best accommodate them. Working in recovery, it's it's a very emotionally draining job. It, it's a very gratifying job seeing people come in at their worst and then seeing them leave, you know, on that pink cloud or, or an emotionally a high, right? But you see a lot of retreads or people that have gone into treatment multiple times. You see a lot of failures, but you see some successes. So if I, if I can make any lasting impact in anybody's life by just picking up a phone call, I mean, it, it's something that seems so simple. But in, in a job description for me, like I said, I get people in a treatment. I, I talk with families. Um, I talk with the client. If they're from out of state, I work. Is something as simple as them. They've never been to an airport. So I talk them through an airport, what they're going to need to bring and, you know, send them a diagram of the airport. You know, okay, so now you're at security. So when you go through security, you call them and you talk to them and you say, hey, what you're, where are you standing? Oh, I'm at gate A1. Well, okay, I'm in gate B19. Okay, so you're going to go down, turn left, and you'll see B19 and then just sit there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, getting, they, they call it a geographic, getting out of the place that you're currently using or drinking, going somewhere that's completely separate. What I tell people is you deserve the time to work on yourself. I know somebody told me it's the time for you to be selfish. And I'm like, well, I was selfish for the last 10 years. What are you talking about? And it's like, no, a, a chance for you to work on yourself, uh, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, so that's what I try to getting people out of there, people's places and things. That's the main thing that people struggle with in treatment. That's where I see the most relapse. Um, it's when they go around the old people, they go see the old places and they keep on doing the same things. Mm, um, yeah. so it's, it's important for them to, to get out of that environment, get around like-minded people that have your best interest at heart. Yeah. Is there a person or a, a thing or something that made it possible for you? It was like, I couldn't have done it without this. The desperation, you know, that that's the reality, you know, me, you know, like, like I said, you know, I had all these flashy things, all these materialistic things I had, um, 
you know, a beautiful family. I still have a beautiful family. Luckily, I'm still fortunate and I'm still with my wife after everything that I put them through. But, you know, going into treatment with all I had was two, literally two garbage bags, one full of clothes, one full of shoes, you know, and I spent four months in that treatment center on 160 acres on generators and well water in the middle of nowhere. If you wanted to leave, it was a 10 mile hike in either direction. And I'm like, I ain't doing that. <laughs> so just, just the desperation that, you know, I didn't have a car. I was homeless. I didn't, my, my name wasn't on a lease and my name wasn't on a mortgage and I had nowhere to go. So the desperation and, and really wanting to change and not feel the way that I did anymore. Yeah. You know, finding a higher power, getting around the right people, getting a sponsor who is non-judgmental and genuinely wanted to see me succeed. You know, without my sponsor, I would like to say that I, there's a good chance that I wouldn't be here today. I can almost promise that. So I have hear a lot of tips that you've given. You mentioned boundaries mm -hmm. and people setting those boundaries. And, you know, I do a lot on parenting here too. And I, I think of like boundaries are love. Yeah. And, and as much as we push back on them as parent or, you know, as a sister or a wife or whatever it is, how did those boundaries help you? And what suggestions would you have for people who have a loved one or a friend who they know has an addiction problem and they want to help them? Yeah. So this is one that I deal with a lot and what eventually got me clean and what led me to want to, uh, is, is I had nothing. Right. And the reason why I had nothing was my own doing in terms of materialistic things. Now I also was uh, emotionally and spiritually broken. And why is that? Because my family set boundaries. And this is the, um, a lot of the time is the hardest conversations that I have with parents because I, I don't have kids myself. So that's my disclaimer when I tell this to parents is I say, look, I don't have kids. So I don't know. I can't begin to tell you how hard this might be. But the reality of it is, is I was on the other side of it. And when my family said, you can't come around our house, my wife said, you can't come around me as long as you're using, as long as you, so there was times where I would just disappear you know, for 38, 40 days. And then I'd call for help. Hey, I need help. And then I'd eventually go to treatment. Um, my, my brother-in-laws and sister-in-law saying, Hey, you can't be around your nieces and nephews. You know, we don't even want you in the same town. Um, you can't come to Christmas. You can't go do these things. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was, my mentality was I was angry. I was angry at them. Right. And how could they do this to me after everything that I've done for them? You know, but they were just protecting themselves. They were setting boundaries. Now, mind you, I wasn't like, I'd, I'd go around there and I, and I would take things from them, you know, because I needed money to, I didn't have any money. So I needed things to support my habit. So I wasn't like this saint of a person that they all suddenly just said, no, man, you can't, you can't come around here. We don't want you around here. That's what I tell parents is like, look, my family did it for me. I've been on the other side. That's what drove me to, to need the help. And it may not happen in an hour, it may not happen in a week, but eventually they're gonna go, man, my, my family has set these boundaries with me. I can't be around them. And my life, what does it come to? You know, for me, I was sleeping in a car. I was, uh, you know, but thank goodness, I, I always got help, so I never had to sleep on the street. But there are people that are out there doing that and, and they'll, they'll do that until they need the help. And then one, one thing I think that is important is and I tell them, I said, look, you're going to have to set this boundary with your child because you're enabling them, you know, whether you're giving them food, whether you're giving them shelter, 
if if they're saving a thousand bucks a month by living at your house rather than paying for themselves and they're spending a thousand dollars on alcohol or drugs and your kid dies that thousand dollars that they spent on the drugs that's that's your money you know you, you just yeah. gave them a thousand dollars to keep on their habit going if you're buying them yeah. food I, I had a family well we're just giving them like a hundred dollars in food and i said you know how much a gram of heroin costs it's a hundred bucks and that last gram that last the snort smoke shot could be his last one and if you're if you're okay with having that on your heart then okay you know that 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 could be your hundred dollars that killed your kid or your loved one right but but that's the reality of it and and statistically today the reality of it is is more people are dying than more people are, are living while using these things how are you now in terms of just your happiness uh, without the material, some of the material mm -hmm. things compared to where you were 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a trip realizing, you know, I, I'm able to go to my, my sister-in-law's house and they're not home, you know? And, and they're like, Hey man, go pick a, go buy our house and go pick this up and then bring it to the park with the nieces and nephews. Right. And I the funny thing is, is I was just talking about this the other day is, you know, I still get to their house and I'm like, I call them when I get there and I run and run out and then I call them when I leave just because I still have that, that fear of, of, you know, I'm like, Hey, if something went missing, it wasn't me. I promise. <laughs> so, but just being able to be present, just being able to go trick or treating with, you know, my nieces and nephews is something when my, my oldest niece, she's seven. And when she was born, I wasn't really, and since then we have five. And so I'm able to be around, I'm able to go to their soccer games. I'm able to go to t-ball games. That to me is what's awesome. You know, being there, I love you, Uncle Mike. That to me is the world. Yeah, yeah it makes me it gets me a little. It makes me happy because I and you can't replace yeah. that. You can't replace that that feeling, and how proud they must be of you, and you must be of mm -hmm. yourself. Like you can't replace that. Yeah, it's you know, yeah. It, to me, there's nothing that me being able to be present and being able to help out whenever there's something that somebody needs before they wouldn't call me. You know, especially when I was playing because I was prideful, I was egotistical. It was like, okay, well, I'll just pay somebody to do it for you. You know, mm -hmm. instead of having me actually be there present, hey, I need help moving or I need help moving this couch or moving this, moving that. I was like, oh, I'll just pay somebody to do it instead of having me actually physically go over there and spend time with them. You can't replace that. Like actually having the person. I mean, money only goes so mm -hmm. far. What we want are relationships and trust. And, and that's just so important. Yeah, that, I think that's the... Like I said earlier, you know, having genuine relationships with people, uh, I think that's the biggest, other than like my family, you know, genuine re relationships with people that truly care about me and have my best interests at heart. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that I've gained because playing football, you get these, you get a lot of relationships and you have people that are always coming at you for, and I'm not, I wasn't even like a big name guy. I was just a guy. You know, you, I always had people coming at me from different angles, wanting certain things. And it's been an interesting five years. I know that. Well, I, I know people listening have learned and are inspired and probably want to follow your story now. So where, where can they find you? And do you talk about this on social media or anywhere where, where we can continue to learn? Yeah. So I, I, I keep updates and stuff on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. My name is Mike Gibson or Michael Gibson. I also have a Instagram. I've still, I tried to recover my password from Twitter. So one thing I did was I had all these social media accounts and that's how I used to, you know, run a gun. And so one thing I had my sponsor do is change all my passwords on everything so I can never get access to them again. 
and I'm having I'm having the dangest time trying to get on that Twitter account, but I'll end up creating a new one. Start yeah, fresh. yes. We'll we'll build it up <laughs> yeah. for you. <laughs> right. You. So yeah, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram as well. I believe my Instagram is Mike.gibson69. And yeah, I'd love to help out in any way that I can. You can, you know, personal message me however it is you need to get a hold of me. Feel free to do so. Well, thanks for all you're doing to help people and give back and you're an inspiration. Not everybody gets to where you are and I hope more people can and learn. Thank you. you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for joining the Natalie Tisdall podcast. You can follow along on Instagram and at natalietisdall.com. Subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave a review so I can continue to bring you fresh content. See you next week.